The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for your wisdom and for your power. And Father, even as we come to this text this morning, we realize that your wisdom and your power are a miracle wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we ask, would you help us? This morning, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? Lord, that we would worship Jesus, that we'd be freed from sin, that we would be part of a new creation, full of confidence and joy in your grace towards us through Jesus. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, this week we had our first observation of Truth and Reconciliation Day in Canada. And we've been reminded yet again through this day of our brokenness as a country. Right, you've been driving around, you've uh, seen the orange t-shirts, maybe you've been wearing the orange t-shirts, maybe you've uh, been looking at the, the ribbons tied to all of the schools as you pass them on the fences. Maybe you've walked down at Vanier Park and you've noticed that, that the rocks that face the ocean uh, at Kitts Point are covered in orange spray paint. And you're reminded again that ours is a dark history, that at Canada there is a deep brokenness in us. Many of you are rightly heartbroken over the reality of, of children that were so poorly cared for that they were buried in these unmarked graves. Or you're grieved by residential school systems where uh, cruelty was often part of, of the process of the education, where children were separated from their families, often by force. And I think what's striking for us is that this is our history. It's shocking. Right? It's, it's our history in Canada. This isn't Soviet Russia that we're talking about. It's not North Korea. It's not Myanmar. 
It's hard to believe that we live in a country, that we live in a country where influential Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches and a modern and educated state work together to the hurt of so many people. We ask ourselves, what went wrong? And what could we possibly do to prevent this from ever happening again? Well, this morning we're going to look at a text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And in this text, we'll be confronted with the reality that even the best of our secular wisdom and religious power so often produces death where it is aiming at life. But in this text, we'll also be offered true and lasting hope. But true and lasting hope in the last place that we as human beings would look for it. So our outline this morning is just this, three points. We're going to look at the cross's folly and power, humanity's wisdom and strength, and God's foolishness and weakness. Before we keep going, Doug, can you turn me down just a little bit? Am I a bit hot? Thanks. I appreciate that. And let's look at, together then at our first point, the cross's folly and power. In verse 18, and Paul writes this in verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the context of this passage is that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to a church that he planted about four and a half years earlier. And he right now is in this place called Ephesus across the Asian Sea from Corinth where the church was. And he's heard a report that divisions were growing in this church, that, that factions were starting. And that it was ugly, that human pride and selfishness were, were infiltrating to the, the church to the point that this ugly infighting was happening. People were beginning to say things like, well, I follow Paul, and that's a lot better than you who follow Cephas. No, I follow Cephas, that's a lot better than you who follow Apollos. I follow Apollos, and that's the best. I follow Jesus, and that means all of you guys aren't following Jesus at all. And there were factions that were growing in the church, and there was bitter evil, and angry division. The reality was that putting others down so that you could get ahead was part and, part, part and parcel of the culture of Corinth, of Corinth. It was something that the people were familiar with in the city of Corinth, but where the gospel was supposed to transform and redeem us to be loving and humble people in the church, what was happening instead was that that culture of competition and pride was making its way into the congregations. And Paul's grieved. He's grieved by their division, and he confronts them in the previous section we looked at last week in verses 10 to 17, confronts them that they are Christians. You're Christians. You're saved by a humble, selfless, self-giving, and loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you in his death on the cross. He's not a boastful and competitive Savior. He's a humble, self-giving Savior. And then here now in this next section, in verses 18 to 25, Paul wants these Corinthians to know that salvation, that life from death, it doesn't come from human wisdom or human power at all. It can't be found that way. But that salvation, life from death in this world, comes from somewhere else. It comes from the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, look again at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
So when I was a kid, I loved illusions. And I loved going uh, to Science World, for example, and seeing uh, the, the living illusions that they have there, maybe walking into a room where the floor looked tilted but was actually flat and you'd stumble and have to try to catch yourself because it was so deceptive. I also love those, those images where you could look at an image one way and then you'd rotate the picture and you'd see something different. Actually, my favorite image uh, that's an example of this, I even have up on the screen. I think I have a, a slide for you of this. And this is the image of the famous duck rabbit. Right? You look at it one way, you see duck. You look at it the other way, you see rabbit. Also, it's about as, as complex as a graph as I can understand as a pastor. Um, this is my mathematics are so poor. Um, but this is... This is sort of like the thing that was happening in Corinth. It was folly, the cross was folly to those who were perishing, to those who had rejected it. Two radically different perceptions of the cross. Folly to the Corinthian city, right? But the power of God to those who had received it. The same thing, but radically different and opposed perceptions of it. The question is why? Why is the cross folly to those who are perishing? Especially in the Corinthian context. Because I think for us, there's maybe a and I could, could recognize that, that in Vancouver, it might certainly be silly. Or it might be you know, equivalent to believing in the tooth fairy for some that could be us. Am I okay? But is it foolishness? What was different about the Corinthian experience? Why was it so foolish for them to have this perception of the cross or to believe, have belief in the cross uh, in this way? Why was it folly for them? Well, it was utter foolish because they didn't understand the cross. Or it's, 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 we, can't, we don't understand the foolishness of the cross because we don't understand the Corinthian context. So they understood the cross in its appropriate context. Let me try to explain it to you a little bit so we see why it was foolish. You see, in ancient Rome, crucifixion wasn't a religious symbol, right? We're used to seeing the cross, and even when we reject it as a tooth fairy sort of belief system, we see it through the lens of it being a religious symbol. For the Corinthians, they saw it through the lens of its historical context as a torture device. A torture device, to be clear, that was reserved for the worst criminals, a torture device that was reserved for conquered, rebellious peoples. I think it's significant for us to understand that Roman citizens could not be crucified. It'd be de- it would be too dehumanizing for them. To be crucified was to be a non-person. And it was a, a crucifixion was a, a method of execution that was engineered to be cruel and painful and dehumanizing. It was engineered to rob you of every last drop of your humanity. So just contrast that with a second with modern execution methods. Today, uh, in our recent 100-year history, uh, we're familiar with modern execution methods. But when those methods have been practiced, the goal has been a humane death. And the goal has been a humane death that even to some degree preserves the dignity of the person who is put to death, where a mask or a head covering of some kind uh, covers their face to prevent them from being a spectacle to the world around them. 
Contrast that again then with this ancient crucifixion method of execution, where along the highways of the ancient world, the crucified would be hung up naked, pinned to a cross, not just one or two, but sometimes hundreds and hundreds. Like a specimen in a lab, they were slowly left to die over a long period of time, over days. The goal was maximum public exposure. The goal was that their bleeding, that their naked revealing, uh, relieving of themselves would be seen. So that shame to the highest degree would be met as they died the most painful death possible. Just let that sink in for a second. See, driving to grandma's house back then on the highways of Rome was a different experience than driving today. Fleming Rutledge, the Episcopal priest and the author of a book on crucifixion called Crucifixion, she highlights the evil of it. She says, Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within human beings. You see, in the ancient world, given this context, to preach a crucified Savior, it would have been the height of foolishness. The height of foolishness, especially in a Roman culture that was built on this paradigm of honor and shame, where social standing, respectability, power, and authority were honored and glorified. But the dishonorable, the non-persons, these were shameful rejected realities. And to claim then that a crucified Jewish man, not a Roman, a Jewish man from that rebellious state of Palestine, to claim that he was your Lord and Savior was the height of foolishness. If you were in a respectable Roman city like Corinth, it was the last thing that you'd want to believe in. If Paul were to invent a an unappealing, socially unacceptable religion. He couldn't have done better than this. To the Corinthians, the cross was utter folly. And yet, Paul writes in the rest of verse 18, a different perspective. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why is that? Because God has confronted the whole edifice of human wisdom and human power through the cross. And he's confronted it in order to reveal it as it truly is. Powerless and weak to accomplish the good that we hope that it will. Just look at our next point, humanity's wisdom and strength, and read verses 19 to 22. Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Greeks loved the wise. Roman culture loved the wise. Corinth loved the wise. Where is the scribe? This is probably talking about the Jewish scribe, the religious expert. Where is the debater of this age? Paul's talking about uh, the, the traveling TED Talks that happened on the circuit in Corinth, the intellectuals that would come and share the best that they had in this new Athens, this Corinthian city. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. You see, Christ City, human history is the history of our human effort in our wisdom and in our power to find flourishing life. This is our whole history, trying to find flourishing life. But in these few verses, Paul takes aim at the church in Corinth, made up of people who loved Greek wisdom and Jewish people who loved religious power. And he says that neither Greek wisdom nor Jewish power nor anything else in humanity, self-centered and self-sufficient perspective to flourishing life can get us there. It can't accomplish what we want it to accomplish. It can't get us where we want to go. And in aiming at both the Greeks and the Jews in particular, Paul is is pointing out the weaknesses and the, the emptiness of how they're seeking to find flourishing life. Greeks, for example, were after flourishing life. They're after it through human wisdom. They were a a, a culture and a people that loved using their reason and their intellect, their sophistication in study and in in, uh, applying their minds to to this world to try to find um, uh, audaimonia. I'm going to pronounce that properly. Audaimonia. It's uh, this idea in Greek of this flourishing life. They wanted to know how can we be happy people, flourishing people who live well and have a virtuous life in this world. And they're trying to find it. That's really what their wisdom was after, was how to live well in this world. Today, I think we can relate to the Greeks a little bit, actually. Because in our secular culture, uh, we also believe that human wisdom and our sophisticated learning can help us to know how to live well. It can help us find the good life, find a, a sort of utopia in our world. It's a good example of this, actually. Uh, an example of this would be the, the Yale Happiness class. It was a class that was first offered in person in 2018, but even that first class had 1,200 people come. In the following March, that class was renamed and it was put online, and since then, 3.3 million people have taken that class. It's the most successful class Yale has ever had in its history. In its history. And I think we can relate to that because we modern people, we're like Greek people who love wisdom, love using the best of our institutions and our education to try to find flourishing life. Let's try and apply these things to find out how to live well in this world. We believe that if we just apply the best of our learning, we'll be truly happy. And Paul attacks this wisdom. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It's not Paul speaking. He's quoting from the Bible. It's God speaking. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will forward. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? A God who is crucified. A Savior who didn't save himself. A philosopher whose wisdom led him to crucifixion, not to eudaimonia. Paul claims this God has destroyed the wisdom of the Greeks and he's made it foolish through his cross. 
But Paul takes aim not just at these Greeks through the cross. He also takes aim at another group of people through the Jewish people. Where Greeks loved wisdom, the Jews loved religious power. The Jews were waiting for a political Messiah. They were an oppressed people conquered by Rome and before them conquered by the Persians, before them conquered by Babylon, before them conquered by Assyria. They were waiting for a political deliverer, a promised savior. They read passages like Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7 that we like to read at Christmas time. Passages that say this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And they said, Amen. Of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They read passages like these and they were excited. They looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come in triumph and in might in political power and in battle but they skipped passages like Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So they lived in a political age. And they had real political enemies and looked forward to the power of a political savior. And they certainly didn't expect the cross. Look at this quote again from Fleming Rutledge. She comments on this. She says, To put it in the bluntest possible terms, no one expected a crucified Messiah. Who could have known that the way through the wilderness to redemption would be the path of humiliation trodden by the Son of God? What religious or secular insight would have led anyone at all to foresee a ghastly, exposed, reviled death for God-made flesh? The prophet Isaiah is saying, Sing to the Lord a new song in Isaiah 42 verse 10. But who knew that the content of that song would be praise for a man condemned? The last thing anyone would have ever imagined, even with Isaiah 53 right in front of them, was the crucified Son of God. In Christ City, in many ways, the Jews of the ancient world are just like us as religious people today. If the Greeks kind of have an analogy to modern, educated secularism, I think there's an analogy of, of the Jewish love for religious power with us as religious folks today. Uh, I think that it's true even for my children. My children have been doing bizarre things lately. They like to run around my house and have chants. So they've gone from saying things like, we are the lips, we are the lips, which I don't understand, I don't know where it came from, to one day I walked into them yelling, we are the power, we are the power, we are the power. I, I didn't know if there was some kind of, you know, an activism that was happening in my home, but what it illustrated is that we want power, not weakness even at two years old. And in the church, we want successful leaders. We want good-looking church buildings and people. We want strategies that guarantee our popularity in our neighborhoods and our attractiveness to the outside world. And we like political power, too, if we can get it. 
We'd like governments that do things the way that we want them to. We'd like influence in the government to move in the direction we want. We'd like the government to bend over backwards to give us all of the freedoms that we think we should have. And yet Paul says it is precisely the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus, which looks neither powerful nor wise, that God has used to destroy human power and human wisdom, to bring it to nothing and to reveal it for what it truly is. You know, in the words of C.S. Lewis, Christianity is not a religion you could have guessed. See, God's plan was to conquer humanity's wisdom and strength with the foolishness of a weak and a dying Savior on a cross. Look at our last point, God's foolishness and weakness in verses 23 to 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. They did not want to believe in a crucified Savior. And folly to Gentiles. They did not want to believe in a foolish God who'd be willing to die in such a shameful way. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, Christ's human, Christ's city, human wisdom and power, it's just like ancient Rome or Babylon. Beautiful on the outside. Beautiful to behold in history books and in ancient archaeology and architecture. But inwardly decaying through cruelty and oppression through pride, and through the horrors and the ravages of sin. Just think back to the residential schools in Canada. Because back when the residential schools were in full swing in Canada, Canada was two things. It was an example of the very best human philosophy and education and political thinking that there was in the world. And Canada was also a deeply religious country with thriving churches. But our sophisticated and our wise learning, it produced a system of cruelty. We know what we'll do. We'll have this forced means of assimilation and it'll be great. It will be for their good. Our religious institutions jumped at an opportunity to have some power. Oh, you're, you're offering us a political place? Or we can have power and influence in the limelight that we think we deserve. Or we can do that. That sounds pretty good. We'll partner with you. And they took part in cruelty and horrors. But Christ City, trusting in our human wisdom or religious power, it always does this. Because as human beings, we are always aiming for life. We're trying to find that flourishing life, but inevitably, as we rely upon ourselves, our own power, and our own wisdom, we get death rather than life. We produce death rather than life. I think certainly secular people today probably think themselves as far better people than who lived back then, right? Isn't that kind of the case? 
If you're somebody who's not so sure about Jesus and you're trusting in education and, and sophistication today, maybe you look back 100 years ago and you think, yeah, but they were so unenlightened, it's different now. And religious people like us, maybe we think, yeah, but it, it was those churches. It's not people like us. Because we would never do that. But is it different? Open your eyes and look at this world. Has our human wisdom brought us the good life that we long for? Has our religious love of power made us more faithful churches in the world? You know, trust in human power is what has led some Christians recently to partner with immorality, to partner with things that are deeply irreligious, to try to gain an upper arm in a culture war. Is this pleasing to the Lord? I don't think these things can get us where we want to go. They never can. Because of verse 21. Because Paul says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Paul's saying that, that we can't know God. The highest goal, the highest purpose for humanity, the highest level of flourishing, living in a right relationship with God, we can't get there through our wisdom. We can't get there through our wisdom. We try to get to flourish in life, but we can't attain it through our wisdom or through our power. We can't do this on our human striving because God has made it so. Because God knows that if we could do it in our human strength or power or our wisdom, our human pride would be exalted. And then what would happen is that it would just end up producing more death and more destruction in this world. So God, in his wisdom, confronts our pride through his cross, and he refuses to let us ascend to heaven through our wisdom and our strength. If you're familiar with the story, you can think back to the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. It's just like that, where God confronts our human pride and stops it. See, life only comes through the cross, and this is why it is power, and this is why it is salvation. Because only it can do these three things that I'm going to talk to you about right now. Because only the cross first, only the cross can confront our pride and show us our sin. Only the cross can help us to see who we really are. So we can, take, we can contend with the depth of the human problem, which is the problem of our human hearts. So ask yourself this morning, are you a good person? Are you a good person? Do you think that you're a good person? How do you know? How would you evaluate whether you are someone who is a good person or not? Do you do it by comparing yourself to the person who's sitting next to you? Certainly, the last couple of years should help us have a sophisticated understanding of human sinfulness, where we realize that oftentimes in societies, we're blind. Right? And oftentimes we compare ourselves to one another, but we're all kind of going the same direction and it's not good. How can comparing ourselves to the person next to us make us a good person or cause us to evaluate who we truly are? See, the Bible offers something so much better. The Bible offers us a standard of goodness that is absolute in the being of God himself. A perfect being of selfless, sacrificial love directing all things towards flourishing. And he gives us every good thing that we have. So if you breathe in this morning, you can breathe in. That breath is a gift to you from God. 
Your existence is upheld by his kindness and his care for you. And yet, what do we do in relationship to this God? If he's a standard of goodness, do we praise him? Do we exalt him? Do we try to bend our lives in obedience towards him that we might find life that is truly life? We don't do these things. And in our sin, the result isn't neutral. Because in our sinfulness, if we rely on our own wisdom and our own strength and blindly live together as a society, we produce death rather than life. And this happens, friends, from the minute level of your relationships with one another to the vast scope of our society producing great evils. The cross shows us the depth of our sin because God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And at the cross, he shows us that in order to save us and not destroy us, in order to save us in love and not destroy us as justice would demand, God himself had to become human to die in our place. If you think about this, you can think about it this way. You can think about all of human sin on a scale, weighing it down on this side. All of our sinfulness and selfishness and the pride that we have in our power and our wisdom producing evil. And the scales tipped it this way, tipped this way. And you got to ask yourself, what could balance that scale in justice? Well, the end of humanity <laughs> doesn't sound very nice. Or someone so infinitely valuable. Someone so beautiful and worth everything. God himself taking our place and taking the punishment that we deserve. You see, the cross shows us the price of our sin because the price of our sin was the death of the Son of God. But second, the cross does more than just show us who we are in our sinfulness for who we really are. The cross destroys our sin. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. There Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What Paul's talking about here in verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, is the way that Jesus on the cross is more than just take the punishment of our sin that at the cross, all of our sinfulness is united with Jesus. We in our sinfulness are united with Jesus so that we are put to death in Jesus on that cross. So the sinfulness of who we are is part of this old order that brings death through our self-sufficient wisdom and power is actually destroyed in Jesus on that cross, killed with him, ended with him. Why? So that something so much better can begin to live inside of us. So we can be freed from the power of sin. To begin to walk in a new creation, a new life full of the Spirit of God. And third, the cross shows us not just the nature of our sin. The cross doesn't just destroy our sin. But the cross meets us there in that place by showing us the love of God in our sin. I think here's where all of us should be shocked. 
right? I think seeing our sin for what it is, that ought to be a shameful, horrifying experience. Right? It's like waking up and looking in the mirror and, and, and you suddenly are confronted with all that you really are, all those secret thoughts, all those private things you thought were hidden being put out there for everyone to see and seeing the horror of that for what it really is. And then also seeing that all the horror of it needs to die, needs to be condemned to death. It's a terrifying, frightening reality. And it would be if it wasn't for the fact that the cross also shows us the love of God for us because he doesn't meet us there with condemnation and rejection. He meets us here with acceptance and love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Christ City, your sin meant Jesus had to die for you. But God's love meant that Jesus willingly died for you. To receive you to himself, to welcome you into his family, to love you to the power of his cross. These three things, I think, start to demonstrate to us what the power of the cross actually is. And last week, I had this experience um, when I was coming home from, from the gathering after Sunday to go get a haircut that kind of hammered it home for me, that, that showed me how beautiful and powerful it is. Because last week, when I, when I was coming home, I realized I need to get a haircut. And as I came to the corner of my street where I live, and there's a barber that I've been kind of building, building a relationship with, I'm, I'm like, okay, now's the time. I'll go in. I'll get this haircut from this barber. And he's a Kurdish man. He's a recently immigrated Kurdish man from northern Iraq. And as I just come from the gathering, worshiping Jesus, teaching about the cross, suddenly I'm here talking to this barber, and he's like, oh, tell me more. I want to know what you, what you believe as a Christian. His, my context is Islam. And the first thing he began asking me about was fear. He says, because Allah, Brand, Allah, he stands behind you like he's going to hit you all the time. He wants to beat you into obedience. His, and the result is that all of us, as, as followers of him, we're terrified. It's awful. He's like, what, what's the difference about Christianity? I'm like, oh my goodness, what an opportunity. And I started talking and sharing with him. And I shared with him the things we've been talking about this morning about the way that, well, actually, the God of Christianity is a different kind of God. And what he's done is he's given himself in love for me because my sin, it deserved death. But this God, he, he took my place to save me. I was sharing with him and I said, and you know what, what happens from that? It changes me. Because now all that I want to do with all of my heart is to obey and to follow him. I've been set free from the sin that held me down into this love for my God. There's nothing I'd rather do in my life than follow him and live for him. And my friend said, yes, that's it. That's it. I see it. And he was amazed by what I was talking about. His, I see that could change who you are as a person. Not fear but love. It can change you. You see, the power of the cross is the power to recreate humanity. To bring our sin and all that it really is to nothing and kill it in Jesus. To raise us up as children beloved by the Father. Part of a new creation with hearts that love and adore 
and serve him. See, when you begin to see this, the image starts to tilt. And all that looked weak and foolish suddenly becomes beautiful, powerful, and wise. The cross isn't folly, but wisdom. It's not weakness, but strength. It's not ugliness, but beauty. It's not shame, but glory. Look at verses 23 to 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ said, in conclusion, this is good news for us. It is good news for us here in this room. It means that the cross is more powerful than all the human wisdom and the human power that you're trying to solve the problems of your life with and can't. It's more powerful than all of the things that you rely upon to bring flourishing life, but don't. It's a promising, hopeful thing because it means a sin that is inside of you constantly bringing you down. It can be killed with Jesus. It can be brought to death so that you can be raised to life. And all you need to do is put your hope and your trust in him to receive the good news that he has died for you, that he can forgive your sin, that he can bring you into his new creation, fill you with his spirit, and make you new. Won't you receive it? We'd love for you to receive it. We'd love to share more with you about what it means to receive it. And this is good news for weak people like us in a church like ours. Because <laughs> it means that all of our weaknesses here, they're not weaknesses, they're our strength. Because God's power is being perfected through our weakness. We don't need to be a sophisticated church or a sophisticated people to have people believe in Jesus Christ in Vancouver. We don't need to have a certain IQ. We don't need the best music in our churches or our best sermons, flawless and always perfectly delivered, which this one was not. We don't need those things. We don't need the coolest people or the most money in our churches to make an influential splash in our neighborhoods. We don't need the best connections to have an influence in our cities. What we need is the cross to shape everything about who we are as Christians. That's what we need, to have our pride humbled, to be made alive as we are filled with the Spirit of God, as we see his love for us and worship him together. For the foolishness of, the God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we ask that you would, in your grace, continue to humble us through your cross. Would you continue to show us the emptiness of our human wisdom and our human power that we always seem to rely upon? And instead, would you make us trust not in those things, but in the foolishness and weakness of a crucified Savior? Father, would you shape our lives by his life? making us humble and selfless and self-giving like he was. Father, would you free us from our sin? 
For those that are here and that are struggling and feel like they can never be free, would you bring them to full submission under Jesus, be made new under his cross? But we ask these things for your eternal glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.